This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. It is unbelievable, as this may sound, four months, only four months till the midterm elections. The stakes couldn't be higher. It has been widely assumed that the Democrats will lose the House. They have had a possibility, so the pundits say, of maintaining control of the Senate, maybe with an even 50-50 split, maybe even 51 to 49, although that it would require running the table in the contested races. My question that I have been unable to come to any firm conclusion about is whether or not what has been going on with the January 6th committee actually could resurrect the Democratic Party's hope for control of the House or the Senate in the midterms of this year. It's, those elections are only four months away. And here to help us understand and have some perspective on that question is Josh Silver, who is the executive chairman of Represent Us, the Northampton-based national organization getting big money out of politics. Josh, what's the prognosis? Four months away. And I'm not sure that many people are going to pay attention during the summer, meaning, well, it's really going to come down to a race between Labor Day and uh, November, was it November 6th? Um, So what say you, Josh Silver? It's a hard one, Bill, and it's why you're not seeing a lot of speculation about on this particular topic while you are seeing the same question asked constantly around the implications for the um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how that will affect the Democrats' prospects in the elections. So the short answer is we don't know, and that's partly because there's this open question looming in Georgia and in Washington, D.C. with the Department of Justice, which is, Will the DOJ indict Donald Trump? Will Georgia, the state of Georgia, bring charges? There's a 23-member grand jury that's been hearing testimony in Georgia. They have another year to plow through, nearly a year to plow through it all. They say they're going to do it sooner. And then the question becomes twofold. One, what additional fodder will they find? Not like they need more, given the the pretty powerful testimony we've seen in D.C. recently. But also, you know, to what extent, and I think this is the big question, to what extent is this going to rile up the Republican base and actually incentivize voter turnout in November, given the fact that the vast majority of Republicans are operating in an information silo well they where they don't actually get news they they get propaganda like russian style propaganda fed to them by the likes of of uh of of michael savage right-wing radio hosts and fox news and newsmac and the like so these create all these variables that that make it unclear and another another crucial factor here is like you know, DeSantis, the governor from Florida, a much more intelligent and dangerous autocrat than Donald Trump, is is ascendant right now. And as as the the current leader of the Republican Party flounders to some degree, Donald Trump's uh, popularity is declining, while uh, while DeSantis's popularity is rising pretty rapidly. Uh, there seems to be a new a new split, a new real competition for the Republican nomination and with it the leadership of the party. One interesting point, Bill, is if you look at, and this is a, an important question, Donald Trump has been doling out endorsements for these primary election candidates across the country, candidates for U.S. Senate, U.S. House, governor, et cetera. And it's interesting to look at at the uh, at, at, at the results as of right now for the U.S. and I'm and I'm going to I'm going to add a caveat. Trump has been much more judicious and careful about his endorsements this year. So rather, unlike previous cycles where he kind of throws them all around willy nilly, he's actually gaming the system. So he tends to only endorse people who are pretty clearly going to win. Um, and for U.S. Senate, uh, he is actually seven and zero, so he's made nine endorsements for u.s senate um seven of his endorsed u.s senate candidates have actually won their nominations republican nominations in the primary and none have lost um for statewide office and that would include governor secretary of state 
Um, nine candidates have won and six have lost out of 21 endorsements. So he's got six more to play out there. And for the U.S. House, for Congress, um, 14 have won, uh, five have lost, and there's eight more races that are still to be determined. So he's got sort of a mixed bag on his endorsements, which are a direct correlation to his power. If he were had a more perfect record, he'd be more untouchable, but he is starting to so, show some sort of chinks in the armor, and it'll be interesting to see the, how this plays out. But to answer your question, uh, we just don't know the extent, but we do know that based on the testimony we've heard and the evidence we've amassed over the last year and a half, uh, it is insane that the Democrats, the Democratic-led DOJ, Department of Justice, has not already uh, indicted Donald Trump. This is something the Republicans would have done a year ago, and it's so classically Democrat that they have not done it. I am intrigued by something that you just said about Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who has been described as a far more dangerous authoritarian than Donald Trump. He's been described also as Trump with a brain, making him more dangerous, also more articulate, uh, and in some ways far more strident in his right-wing ideology. I'm wondering if you have an opinion. Let me just phrase the question this way, Josh. In, in the column I wrote for the Gazette this past weekend, I said that Trumpism doesn't rely on Trump. It gets a lot of oxygen from him, but Trumpism as this authoritarian uh, juggernaut uh, sweeps across the country. It doesn't need Trump. Uh, and I'm wondering if you think that's true. Well, I mean, you know, DeSantis is, he's not to be sort of overlooked. Um, every time Trump gets dinged by the January 6th commit, committee hearings. Uh, there seems to be a direct correlation with Ron DeSantis's rise in popularity. Um, a, a New Hampshire poll came out just recently. Get this, Bill. DeSantis is beating Trump in New Hampshire right now. 39% uh, to 37% amongst Republicans. Wow. That's, yeah, he's beating Trump. So, like this is a this is a, this is a big deal. This is a story that has evolved over the past couple of months, and we're talking about a serious challenge to Donald Trump's sort of supreme position as uh, in the GOP that he's enjoyed over the last uh, five six years. So, this is a major shift, not to be underestimated, and it's going to change up everything. Now, what's also notable though is like if you go back to the the question of the indictments. Um, first of all, you saw two days ago that the Fulton County Grand Jury in Georgia, uh, they subpoenaed Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, and a whole host of other uh, major players. You saw that, is, I can't say Cipinelli, I don't know how to pronounce Trump's lawyer's name, uh, who finally agreed to testify in front of the January 6th commission. Um, over the next few weeks, and he's the one who was referred to uh, by Cassidy Hutchinson, the young uh, chief of staff or, or senior aide to Mark Meadows, who testified in such a compelling way last week. Um, she constantly referred to the way how that that attorney had corroborated and agreed with the the, the malicious and illegal activities being led by the former president. So I feel like you know. Look, everyone understands that January 6th and the Trump administration makes Watergate look like a couple kids stealing gum from a store in comparison to a bank heist, that this is the biggest political scandal in, in modern times by far. And I feel like we've all become so numb to all this because of Trump's unique attributes, his ability to sort of bury scandal and avoid capture, so to speak. This is huge stuff that's playing out right now, and it is indeed uh, possible that it's going to result in something that's been unfathomable to all of us, which is that it really could lead to the indictment of Trump. Lawrence Tribe, who's a big-time constitutional lawyer at Harvard, uh, one of the most prestigious constitutional attorneys 
in the country predicted just this weekend that the Justice Department would indeed indict Trump. Um, and, and you know, this you know, Merrick Garland, the head of the Department of Justice, was his student at Harvard. Um, and he's a good and he's a friend. And so this is not just random speculation. So things are getting more interesting. Does the indictment doom would an indictment doom Trump? I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think if you see the president, uh, the former president indicted, it just it would peel away that last sort of portion of supporters he has that he needs in order to win. And I, I think I think you would see a DeSantis uh, ascendancy inevitable at that point. Yes. What about Mike Pence? Is he going to run for president if Trump is no. vulnerable? You have charisma to run for president, Bill. You know that. I mean, just ask, just ask John Kerry and the you know Al Gore and the in the sort of wasteland of of candidates who who lacked it and lost. So no, Mike Pence is infinitely unpopular. He's not going to win. Is there anyone else in the Republican uh, uh, group that? or grouping of possible candidates uh, who could take on DeSantis? I mean, I, I understand I'm ahead of the head of the uh, story here, but uh, it seems- No, no, there's nobody by a long shot. There's absolutely nobody. I, I think it also begs the, so, so it's really all about DeSantis. The, the other big question is, if you ask the biggest democratic operatives, who could be the nominee for president for the Democrats in 2024, they don't know because you know, Joe Biden is is so old and so wooden. And and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But, you know, who steps in uh, his the, the the vice president is is deeply unpopular and not a particularly good candidate. Um, and the, the more practical choices, people like Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, who's shown an ability to a Democrat who can win moderate votes. Um, they don't seem to be stepping up, but they could. And this is this big mystery that nobody's talking about and will really determine whether or not the Democrats can hold on to the White House in two years. The day after the election in November, the question of who will be the Democratic nominee will be the first question that will be front and center across the country. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back more with Josh Silver. This is Political Goal with Josh Silver right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHM. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants, smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria, bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands, at farmers markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero Food, as fresh as it gets. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Jessica Eau Claire. Did you know you can start your pre-qualification or mortgage application online? Head on over to our new website at bestlocalbank.com and apply today. Or if you prefer, come see us in person at one of our Hampshire or Franklin County locations. Right now, we're also giving you the opportunity to save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. That's right. You get $750 plus another $250 
when we pre-qualify you for a mortgage. It's the best local mortgage from the best local bank. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Jessica Eau Claire, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue one of our very favorite monthly segments, Political Gold with Josh Silver. Josh Silver is the executive chairman of Represent Us, the Northampton-based national organization dealing with most of the most important political issues of our time. I'd like to ask you, Josh, to go back to something that we were talking about in the earlier segment that you mentioned, which is the effect of the Supreme Court's decision to overrule Roe versus Wade. And the political commentary I've been reading saying, see how this will animate and, and invigorate all of those voters who are going to say we have to do everything possible to stop the Republicans and this right-wing uh, 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 avalanche that is overtaking the country led by the Supreme Court. You made the point it's going to really motivate Republican right-wing <coughs> evangelicals who will just churn out in droves to vote for Republicans. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand how this is apt to sort itself out in terms of the election itself. Yeah, it's really hard to know. Um, right now, you know, a majority of voters in the United States, Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll, a big poll nationally. Majority of voters, 57% said the, the Roe v. Wade reversal would not affect their likelihood to vote. 37% uh, said they would be more motivated um, and 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 the the opinion split down party lines. So half of Democrats say the reversal will make them more motivated. Seventy three percent of Republicans said they would not. So you've got this on one hand. How much is this going to motivate the evangelical base to get, as you say, get out and vote for Republicans? Versus how much is it going to motivate Democrats to actually show up and 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 not you know sleep in and and ignore election day? I. I my own prognostication is that this is going to ultimately help the Democrats significantly more than the Republicans, given that nearly two thirds of the American public don't really want abortion to be completely illegal across the board. And the Democrats have a massive motivation issue right now that the, the I mean, look at our president. He's he's sub 40 percent in approval. He's the, one of the least inspiring presidents we've seen in a long time. And the Democratic base is, is incredibly unmotivated. Unfortunately, the, the base that is the least motivated that's most needed are, are tend to be marginalized communities, black and brown people who are not as incensed statistically by Roe v. Wade as liberal white voters. So, you know, this is a complex soup, but I'd say at the end of the day, the road v, Roe v. Wade issue is going to be a net positive for Democrats, but not enough to stop the bleeding in the midterms, which I think are going to be uh, a, a loss for the Democrats in the U.S. House. It's going to be very, very close in the Senate with a probable loss for the Democrats in the Senate. And then you've got the state races where at the current moment are benefiting uh, the Republicans. And so at the end of the day, you know, it, it all comes back to the leader of the Democratic Party, who is Joe Biden, who, as you said, Bill, before the show started, when we were talking off air, there's a big story in The New York Times today about how so many Democrats, particularly progressives, are really pissed that we don't have a fighter. We don't have a leader 
in in office uh, to sort of fire up the party and take the fight to the opponents. He's such a consensus builder. You know, he he built a long, I think, a three decade plus Senate career on brokering deals with Republicans as a moderate. And if you look to the current moment, more now more than ever, more even arguably than in the 1930s and early 40s when FDR was brokering the New Deal and basically went to war with the Republicans as a key ingredient to his success, this is a moment when if the president and the Democrats are going to win, they need to go to war against the Republicans who have been who declared war on the Democrats decades ago, but the Democrats don't respond in kind and instead they tend to say, thank you, may I have another? And even when they fight back, I'm kind of you putting my fingers in air quotes here because they don't know, everybody knows this, like the Democrats don't know how to fight. Uh, knowing how to fight is a Justice Department that's already indicted the president. Knowing how to fight is playing bare knuckle politics and, and the president on a daily basis using the bully pulpit to just simply tell the American people the fact that the current Republican leadership is the most corrupt and the most authoritarian set of actors that the American government has ever seen within its ranks. The fact that we're debating whether or not there should, there's gonna, should be an indictment of Donald Trump on, on July 7th, 2022 is laughable. Do or let me, I'm going to rephrase that question. Do the traditional issues, uh, pocketbook issues, so-called, including inflation, play an important role in this decision-making process, uh, which is the midterms of 2022? It's interesting. It depends on the audience, Bill. So what we find is that if you're talking about the more extremes, so the far the the let's say the quartile so 25 percent and that's a, a very rough amount but let's let's just say for a moment remember the country is 25 percent democrats 25 percent republicans 50 percent independents but it splits pretty far close down the middle because roughly half of independents break with republicans and half break with with democrats so if if the country ends up voting roughly 50 50 what you find is roughly half of those people who vote for Democrats who are the more far left and half of the people who respond to uh, are more far right. They those farther ends of the polls, they don't care as much about those issues. They say they care about minimum wage and inflation and pocketbook issues, et cetera, when they're polled. But the way they vote, what they decide on to vote are much more polarizing issues. The, the vilification, demonization of, of the opponent, opposing party is what works with them. And then that roughly half of voters who sort of swing in the middle um, and are more considered moderate, those people do respond to pocketbook issues. So you've got a bifurcated audience and you can't apply the same rules to the whole audience. I'd like to look at one other issue that's front page news this morning, and that is the resignation, the impending resignation of, of, board, of, of the, the leader of the conservative party in uh, England. And I'm wondering whether there are le lessons uh, for the United States in that, given the corruption that has permeated that government, the scandals. It sounds kind of familiar. Uh, the conservative party leader there is being deposed, uh, but here, well, not so much. Well, I, I hate to do this, Bill, but this is a rare moment where I'm going to actually suggest that Monty talks. I don't know if I, I don't know if I've ever done this, but 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 before, because usually it goes south quick. But Monty made a good point before we went on the air that there is a key difference, Monty. The key difference is that the conservative party, first of all, what Boris Johnson is being accused of is essentially party gate, as they're calling it, taking the suffix that we created 50 years ago this summer from the Watergate scandal and partying when there was COVID lockdowns multiple times, as well as mishandling um, a sexual misconduct accusation within his cabinet, which is a serious accusation. 
Uh, yeah, but it's but wait a second, wait a second. It's Trump, not, it's Trump not is accused insurrection. It's not sedition. It's not potentially traitorous behavior. It's not people having actually died and been wounded. And within you know the calls for the execution of his closest cabinet member, the vice president. That being said, in conservative, the conservative party in the UK, now upwards of fifty cabinet members have resigned in protest, and that has forced the hand of Boris Johnson. To have to resign in this country, given all the things we just spelled out that Donald Trump and the Republican Party have been accused of. The fact that you can think of two, maybe three Republicans who have spoken out vehemently against this compared to 50 resignations. That's the key difference here. And and Bill, I get I hate to do it. I'm a broken record, but it gets back to the failure of federalism, the failure of a political system in the United States that I would argue inadvertently, because it was not the intention of our nation's founders, inadvertently has codified a duopoly, which is bad for business and it's bad for government. And when you have a duopoly that where you vote the way we vote, where the the there's unchecked amounts of money flowing into politics from special interests, big money corporations, you have the kind of extremism and polarization that has been slowly building over the last several decades and has literally ensured that extremists now hold office across these seats, these Republican seats particularly, and have created the dynamics that are so insane that you got like it's party over country at every turn and then until we address these structural problems with our ethics laws our election laws our campaign finance laws the problem will continue to worsen and it's particularly depressing since we as you guys know we had the biggest opportunity in generations to fix these policies and they lost by two votes mansion cinema and uh, and and that's that's the issue, and and that's why we are different than England. One last question for you today, Josh. If Biden says I'm running, does that end the contest or potential contest for the Democratic nomination for president, or does does the party accede to that imposition of his will? Yes, it does end it. But remember that, you know, the behind the scenes is a lot more complex than what we see out here in the in the public. And if Biden steps down and decides not to run, he is going to first make sure that there is a viable what is considered by the Democratic apparatchik, which does not necessarily mean that it's true, but what will he will view as a viable stand in to run. And if he doesn't have that viable stand in, then he's not going to, you know, then he's going to he's going to run for reelection. I my hope is that someone like a Sherrod Brown would be the one who steps up an Ohio senator who has no name recognition, but has shown over and over again the ability to win moderate swing votes. And that's sadly, that's what's going to be needed with a, a Bernie Sanders is not going to be able to win the presidency in, in, in the United States in 2024. Yeah. Hi. Let's get some other 80-year-old to run for president. That doesn't seem to be a winning ticket for the Democratic Party. It does raise the issue of what about Kamala Harris, who I think the Democrats cannot afford to have on the ticket and cannot afford to not have on the ticket, because if she were not the vice presidential nominee, it would, I think, outrage large segments of the black and brown communities and other marginalized communities and on the other hand, she just has not been a very effective communicator and not very effective as the vice president. So, yeah, I don't know, Bill. I, I think if 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 a, a Sherrod Brown type candidate were to come in with a different person of color as the VP, I think people would forget about it pretty quickly and fall in line. But we can agree to disagree. We've done it before. OK, on that happy note, we'll leave it. This has been Political Goal with Josh Silver. Josh, thank you so very much for your time and your expertise and insights. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The city of Holyoke is looking for community input on how to spend their remaining ARPA funds. 
The city received over $40 million in ARPA and coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds to support economic recovery efforts. Last year, the first half of the funds were used to pay for small business grants, water and sewer infrastructure, affordable housing development, nonprofits to improve their facilities, and mental health services. The city is asking residents to fill out a survey found on their website. Anyone who fills out the survey is automatically entered in a drawing to win lunch with Mayor Josh Garcia or a $200 gift card. Amherst's three elementary schools will have art and technology classes this fall. School committee members were able to find the $53,000 needed to restore the teaching positions, despite the town council's rejection of the committee's spending plan. The committee's decision means the teachers at Wildwood, Fort River, and Crocker Farm schools will be back to full-time rather than the 80% positions that existed over the past school year. And the K-9 unit at the Greenfield Police Department lives on. A community fundraiser has saved the unit for the 2023 fiscal year. After the budget reduction was announced, the Greenfield Police Department listed their K-9 unit as one of the resulting cuts. However, many residents said they would be willing to make donations to keep the program going and were able to raise around $6,000 of the $7,000 needed for the K-9 handler's stipend. Mixture of sun and clouds today, low humidity, a high of 78 to 82. Variable clouds tonight, humidity on the increase with an overnight low of 58 to 64. A little bit on the sticky side here for Friday with a mixture of sun and clouds and a high of 84 to 88. We dry right out for the weekend with sunshine and low 80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los gobernadores demócratas en los estados donde el aborto seguirá siendo legal están buscando formas de proteger a los pacientes que viajan allí para el procedimiento junto con los proveedores que los ayudan de ser procesados por sus estados de origen. Los gobernadores demócratas de Colorado y Carolina del Norte emitieron órdenes ejecutivas el miércoles para proteger a los proveedores y pacientes de abortos de la extradición a estados que han prohibido la práctica. Los gobernadores de Rhode Island y Maine también firmaron órdenes ejecutivas el martes por la noche declarando que no cooperarán con las investigaciones de otros estados sobre personas que buscan abortos o proveedores de atención médica que los realizan. Por su parte, los gobernadores demócratas de Minnesota, Nuevo México, Nevada, California y Washington, así como el gobernador republicano moderado de Massachusetts, firmaron órdenes ejecutivas a los pocos días del fallo para prohibir la cooperación con otros estados que pudieran interferir con el acceso al aborto. En otras informaciones, el Tribunal Judicial Supremo de Massachusetts escuchó el miércoles argumentos sobre una nueva ley que permite que cualquier persona vote por correo por cualquier motivo. El Partido Republicano del Estado sostiene que la ley es inconstitucional y podría fomentar al fraude electoral. Está en cuestión la ley de votos, que fue aprobada por la legislatura y convertida en ley por el gobernador Charlie Baker. La amplia ley electoral hace que la votación por correo sin excusas sea permanente al tiempo que amplía las opciones para votar en anticipadamente entre una serie de otros cambios. Michael Wash, un abogado del partido, argumentó que la votación anticipada y la votación por correo sin excusas hacen que las elecciones sean más susceptibles al fraude electoral, aunque reconoció que no había evidencia que lo respaldara. Se espera que el tribunal emita una decisión mucho antes de las primarias de septiembre. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. What I have noticed during the summer is so many of our spiritual leaders are on assignment for us. Sabbatical. <laughs> spiritual way of looking at things. <laughs> okay. However, we are so pleased that one of our regular Reverend and the Rabbi uh, uh, segment uh, participants, the Reverend Averill Elizabeth Blackburn from the Florence Congregational Church, is with us today. Thank you so much, Reverend Averill, for being with us. I really appreciate it. I'd like to begin by asking you a question that is political in nature, but is also something that has really roiled many congregations and forced various congregations of uh, many different faiths to have to come to grips with what do they believe about some fundamental, fundamental issues of uh, personhood and of, of life. And it's the question that has been raised by the Supreme Court's decision reversing Roe versus Wade, 
Wade saying, the government will decide for women. The government will be all-powerful. It's a really historically disturbing decision in terms of the governmental power over women from an allegedly conservative court. It's not a conservative court. It's a radical right-wing court. But that said, and you, I'd appreciate knowing how your congregation has responded and how you as the spiritual leader of the Florence Congregational Church, how you have approached this issue with your congregation. Reverend Averill? Yes. Well, it is a historic moment, definitely. We did have the leaked opinion, so we knew it was coming. But when it actually happened, everyone reacted. Um, as you know, my church is apolitical. Every person is subject to their own conscience, and their conscience is subject to God. So we have an array of differing opinions on everything. So the first Sunday after the court papers were released, I had one woman come to me and just say, Reverend Averill, how could this happen? And really, how do you answer that? It's the court that decides these courts. The court is human. The court uses their judgment. And whether or not you agree with the court, you have to abide by the court's decision. So all I could do was hug her and offer her the comfort that I could give her because there really was no answer to the question because the court had decided and now it has gone back to the states. And there are platitudes, of course, like maybe it will be overturned again or we're in Massachusetts, we're fine. That doesn't really help the situation, but all you can do is offer love and support in those situations. And then we had a gentleman who is new to the congregation who wanted to pray for the Supreme Court for having done the right thing because we open up our prayers to the congregation. And of course, as the minister, I can't show a bipartisan position either way. It doesn't matter if I agreed with him or didn't agree with him. I couldn't pray the prayer he wanted me to pray. I just couldn't do it. So instead I had to pray for the justices, for their protection, because we all want the protection of people who work for the betterment of society. I prayed for the government, for their wisdom and for their counsel and tried to move on that way, tried to be as apolitical as possible while trying to address what he needed spiritually in that moment. And then we had a moment at our cabinet meeting where um, a lovely woman who holds a position in our cabinet just said at the end, I am so glad that my mother chose to have me or give birth to me. And you know, that simple statement is so powerful and yet so polarizing. And it's so incredibly human as well because I think many of us can say that we're glad our mothers had us. We're glad our mothers gave birth to us, but people on the other side might take that as an antagonistic statement. And so we had a little discussion and I told her it was the most human thing she could possibly have said, because it is human. It is a human thing to be thankful for our mothers, thankful that they gave birth but it is also unfortunately political. Thankfully, no one took offense, but I could easily see one or two people cocked their eyebrows and took note of it. So we're, we're on both sides of the situation. Reverend Averill, I, let me ask you to backfill a little bit. You mentioned a cabinet meeting of the Florence yes. Congregational Church. What's, what's the cabinet? What's the meeting? Oh, of course. Sorry. The cabinet is a um, group of people who hold office in the church. You know, the head of religious education, the clerk, the um, representative from the trustees, the head deacon. And we meet once a month to discuss the church. You also mentioned opening up prayers to the congregation. Could you describe that for yeah. us? Uh, yes. So what we do is... We just say, are there any joys, prayers, or concerns in the congregation? 
and we have a microphone and I go around and offer the microphone to anyone and they can say anything that they want, any joy, prayer or concern or little story that they have. And I try and bring um, my notebook around so I can take notes because honestly, I forget all the prayers by the time they're done. And anyone can say anything. And then after that, I come back up to the pulpit and I relay the prayers in a joined prayer when everyone is solemn and bowing their heads and praying. Well, at the risk of asking you to reconcile the irreconcilable, what did you do given that you had one member of your congregation thinking that the Supreme Court is right, that a fertilized egg is a human being and a person, and someone else saying, wait a second, I am a woman. I have the right to make these very personal decisions for myself. And I, and what the Supreme Court said is that, no, now the government is going to decide for me. Again, a radical position. Yeah. Um, how, how, do you, yeah. how do you reconcile it? You've got people praying for diametrically opposite things. What you do is you don't make blanket assertions. You don't come out one way or the other. You address them privately and talk to the person at their level what they're feeling because all feelings and all beliefs and all spiritual feelings are valid whether or not you agree or disagree or partially agree with them. You have to meet a person where they are on their spiritual journey. And then when someone's offering a prayer like that, you just have to kind of smooth over it so that it is vague enough and overreaching enough so that almost anyone can agree with what you're praying for. So do you, does the person specifically offer this uh, prayer to the congregation having the microphone in their hand or do they tell it to you and then you modulate or moderate it as you determine is appropriate? They offer it into the microphone as they see fit. And then when I go up to pray at the pulpit, I moderate it and modulate it to what is more appropriate. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with the Reverend Avril Elizabeth Blackburn from the Florence Congregational Church right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirits. There's custom glass issues. So anything that comes in custom glass is having trouble globally. There was an American whiskey that was the bottle was causing a holdup that was hard to get, right? What one was that? Bullet bourbon. Oh, yeah, right. Which is a custom glass issue. You know, they have all the stuff. Most of these whiskeys are 3, 4, 10, 18 years old. Way before COVID, way before any supply chain issue so it's not a production issue it's a bottling and shipping issue we're tasting whiskey today and these are all gonna be single malts but a lot of the famous single malts we're used to ordering them a certain way but we can't order them in that way because they're not getting in enough of those things so the price will go up 20 25 30 dollars on the shelf we're not gonna pass that on to the consumers we're just gonna go we don't have it but we have other options these are single malt whiskey alternatives I like cheap find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic. 
the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. Do you act a certain way around your partner because you're afraid of what they'll think or say? Are you afraid of what they'll do? If you're in a relationship, it's your right to be healthy and safe. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, or physical, you have options, and Safe Passage is here to help. It's all free and completely confidential. We are here for you. Call our hotline at 413-586-5066 or visit safepass.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with Reverend Avery Elizabeth Blackburn from the Florence Congregational Church. One question I have for our spiritual leaders in our community that I really like to pose when I can is, what are you preaching on this week? Where is the uh, genesis of the... Pun intended. <laughs> of, the, ...of the story or of the parable uh, uh, that you are you are uh, speaking about, and why are you doing it? So you did give me a hint, but I'd leave it up to you, uh, Reverend Averill. What are you going to preach on this Sunday? I am preaching on the Good Samaritan, and the short answer is because the lectionary told me to. <laughs> what is the lectionary? People <laughs> yeah. may ask. Yes, yeah. I was waiting for that question. The lectionary is a um, guideline for ministers that has um, the Bible reading set out on a three-year cycle. So you have an Old Testament lesson, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel lesson um, every week, and you get to choose one of them to preach on. And it goes through a cycle every week. There's a new four passages, and it's a three-year cycle, and you have year A, year B, year C. I think we're in year C but I'm not exactly sure. And it just helps the minister vary what he or she preaches. Where does this come from? Um, well, the Catholics started it, but the Protestants have their own, and I know it's regulated by Vanderbilt University. They have the main one up on their website that most ministers go to. You can um, buy printed guides that are standardized. It's, it's interesting. Jews, of course, have a, a three-year cycle for reading sacred texts as well. Um, uh, so, but to get to the content, um, what are you going to say about the Good Samaritan? Well, I'm going to be talking about the traveler this time around. Um, usually, we're supposed to see ourselves in the Good Samaritan, be the Good Samaritan. But I see ourselves... I see myself in the traveler. The traveler is going down a road which is 20 miles long. Um, it's, it's a road going down to Jerusalem. It's a drop from 2,300 feet above sea level to 1,300 feet below sea level. So it's narrow, it's rocky, there are sudden turns in it. It's been described as the bloody way in the fifth century. And in the 19th century, people were still paying safety money to sheikhs. Um, to for protection. And usually you travel down this road in packs of several people for protection. But the traveler is reckless, he's foolhardy, and he goes on his own. And he's waylaid because of this. And I feel like in modern society, we often feel isolated. We feel alone. We feel like we're traveling on life's journey alone with no help. And we're often passed by by the priest or the Levite, people who should be helping us, but aren't helping us. And we're just left there to languish, to die when we need help the most. And we're waiting for the Good Samaritan to come along. And who is the ultimate Good Samaritan? Now, the Samaritan is a racial distinction, but a Samaritan was 
also a slur meant for a heretic or someone who didn't follow the Sabbath law. And Jesus was thought of by the Pharisees as a heretic and someone who didn't follow the Sabbath laws. And I think that in a way we can see Jesus in the Good Samaritan. And we're just going along life's road as the traveler, um, going through society with inflation everywhere, with gas prices rising, there's the war in Ukraine, there's politics, there's the Supreme Court, there's a great deal of social change. We feel lost and alone. And Jesus is our ultimate salvation. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. And we just have to look for him and wait for him and accept him when he comes along the road offering us a helping hand. It's a different way of looking at it, but I think it fits. And you saying to wait uh, as opposed to actively seek out or to actively engage? What, what do you, what, can you explain that a bit for us? Well, the traveler is waylaid and left for dead and unable to help himself. And a priest goes by, looks at him, and passes on. And the traveler is just kind of lying there, unable to help himself. And a Levite goes by, which is a people's priest. He sees him, notes him, and passes on. And the traveler is so beaten up, he can't help himself. He can't get up. He can't continue on his way. And so it's only until the Good Samaritan comes and finds him that he receives help. So he, in that kind of analogy. And the fact that he was a Samaritan, Jesus. because to, speaking to a Jewish audience, when the Jews did not yes. like the Samaritans, it has even more punch. It'd be like in Northampton if you said, and then a Republican came and helped. Yes. You not only have yes. to love like the Samaritan loves the injured person, you have to love the Republican slash Samaritan at the same time. Yes, the Samaritans were deeply hated by the Jewish population. They were kind of a hybrid people. They had been Jews once, and then they had been captured by a foreign, um, a foreign empire. They had intermarried, and so they were kind of these Jewish hybrids who weren't really Jewish anymore. And they thought they had the real scriptures, and they thought they were following the real God. But of course, the Jews knew that they had the real scriptures, that they were following the true God of Abraham. So there were a lot of disputes between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with the Reverend Avril Elizabeth Blackburn from the Florence Congregational Church. Thank you so much for being with us on this edition of The Reverend and the Rabbi. Appreciate Reverend Avril very, very much. Thank you. Everybody needs help sometime. Seven out of ten Americans are one paycheck away from being homeless. In Massachusetts alone, there are 10 new homeless families a day. One in four people will have a mental illness at some point in their life. A brain injury can change a person's life in an instant. ServiceNet helps more than 10,000 people each year. Every day, we help children with behavioral issues. We work with babies suffering from developmental delays. We shelter the homeless. We offer residential programs for people with severe mental illness, developmental disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, and substance addiction. And that's just the beginning of what we do. We are here when you need us. We have five outpatient counseling centers with convenient locations in Hampshire, Franklin, Hamden, and Berkshire counties. At ServiceNet, we believe that everybody has the ability to live a meaningful life, and we're here to help make that happen. For more information, please check our website. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10.